Hey there, folks. Welcome back to Classic Camera Revival, and we are caffeinated and we're ready to go because some of the things we're going to be discussing today are a bit annoying, but are always worth the effort. Welcome to the Classic Camera Revival, coming to you from the Greater Toronto Hamilton region of Ontario, Canada. If you don't have gear acquisition syndrome now, you most likely will by the end of the episode. Okay, so when it comes to film photography, just in general, sometimes things aren't as easy and straightforward as they as they should be. I mean, you can always bring something to the lab, you can send it out, you can use modern cameras, but then there are some things that just make you want to scream, like, what were the designers thinking? Or what were scientists or early photographers thinking when they were putting these things together? So today we're going to be discussing some films, some processes, and some cameras that are just worth the effort. And to start it off, we always love hitting on the cameras that are premium. So Bill has the Leica M3. Okay. Um, this is my dad's M3. I inherited it. Well, he gave it to me uh, about, a, I would say, about almost a month before he passed back in 2005. And as someone who owns two Leica M bodies, the dual stroke m3 uh from 1954 and a leica m42 made in midland ontario from the very late 1970s um yeah i love these cameras but they can be a pain in the ass um the m3 especially if you're someone who is relatively new to film photography and you've been using a point and shoot and you look at this lovely bit of design iconic design from the and say ooh I want one of those well first off if you want to buy one because uh, you know unless you have an elderly relative who's got one will to you in their estate you're buying one and you're gonna have to spend some money and I got lucky because I wound up with again a 1954 m3 with a 50f2 sumicron a 90f4 collapsible elmerate in impeccable shape. Well, the shutter needed replacing. So that's one of the things that are worth the effort. Leicas cost money to repair, to use. Uh, if you're used to having your camera do everything for you, like say a point and shoot or an F5 or an F100 with a 51.4 prime lens on it, yeah, the M3, it's like going from a McLaren supercar down to a vintage Porsche 911. A little more effort is involved i.e. you load the camera from the bottom, just like the Barnarks, which are even worse. But we won't talk about those. We're going to pick on the M. Uh, and I and I do this with love because I love shooting with the M. Uh, and, and again, the M, it's kind of, they stink for macro photography. They stink for distances greater than 135. Uh, then you need a Visoflex accessory. Uh, which turns it into sort of an SLR, kinda. And if you want to shoot wide on your M3, there's the 35F2 or the 35, I want to say, F3.5 with the goggles, which you need the special goggles so you can sort of pretend that it's wide angle. And then again, that's, well, more money. Um, or you can go with an accessory uh, viewfinder on the uh, cold shoe on top. 
I'm doing this to sort of warn you that this is not an automatic everything camera. It is every you got to do everything yourself. It doesn't even have the M3 does not have a meter. It predates onboard camera meters. Well, not really. It you know, the Contax 3A had a selenium meter on top of it. But that said, the M3 is I would say it is a camera worth the effort for because again it's the the lens it's the magic of the lenses even if you're using like a, a third party lens with an adapter uh, the end results look gorgeous especially if you've got something like canon glass on there or nikkor glass if you can find it the uh, results are just amazing and it's again a it's a compact camera you you're not going to be lugging something big and heavy around but it's just involved and it's a it's a camera to be mindful when you're shooting as opposed to oh opportunity point click done yeah it doesn't work like that <laughs> effort is involved and again m3s are indeed worth the effort um both financially and once you get the hang of shooting with it uh artistically and again they are tools uh many of them are still in service uh after a good overhaul or two um yeah those are my two cents on the on the subject so now the one thing that you mentioned is that it's a double stroke m3 so what's the difference between the your... double and the single stroke okay leica in their infinite wisdom uh when they decided to go with a lever they were scared that a single stroke would tear the acetate base they made double stroke leicas up until about i can't remember the serial number offhand up until probably the late 19 i think around 57 or 58 then they switched to single stroke like everything else like if you get an m2 it's a single stroke um it's just a little quirk with the camera uh at the time you could convert your double stroke to a single stroke uh me it's just you know it's just part of the camera now again mine is a very early production i don't have the frame selector uh like later ones m3s did uh and again it's part of the quirkiness of the camera now granted compared to some others like say the metalist this thing's a walk in the park but everything is well relative in the grand scheme of things and again it's like if you're jumping from something that you're used to doing having a lot of the camera do the heavy lifting to guess what you're in complete total control yeah there is a learning curve one thing i'd say just to jump in on the uh, the film advance you know there are worse things in the world than a double stroke advance there have been other cameras where the uh, manufacturer decided to let's try and get a bit fancier on the uh, on the film advance and uh, they end up making cameras that were less reliable. Like I think one of the Retina, the Kodak Retina models, mm. when they modified the film advance, um, the camera suddenly became rather unreliable. Uh, so yeah, double stroke or a long, long stroke uh, advance is not the end of the world. I'd rather take something like that mm. where the camera's not gonna break down. Oh, absolutely. Keeping Keeping things as simple as possible is always uh, a good idea. 
Um, and we're going to just stick in Germany for a while because they love to over-engineer their cameras. Um, the, uh, Among other things. Yeah. The retinas are a prime example of that. And this is uh, a camera that I recently acquired from James Lee. Um, and that would be uh, the Zeiss Icon Super Iconta 531-2. Bit of a mouthful there so and a handful absolutely and that's the biggest that's the biggest issue with this uh camera is the is the overall size of it and the layout so for those who um don't know zeiss icon was built out of a conglomeration of other camera manufacturers that carl zeiss sort of infused capital into and basically took over manufacturing and they they produced um, three series of folders. They produced the Netars, which were their bargain basements, the Icontas, which were their mid-range, and then their Super Icontas were the ones that were equipped with a rangefinder. So the first thing is that, A, with a rangefinder, it immediately takes the guesswork out of focusing. So over an average folder, you already have that little bit extra. Um the problem is, and again, you have this big, beautiful 6x9 negative, so essentially the full frame of the medium format world, um, the layout is a bit weird. And because of the size of it and the way it works is your rangefinder dial is right at the front of the camera. And there's sort of a magnifying piece that you stare through this little tiny rangefinder. Thankfully, the the rangefinder patch is still nice and contrasty, but it's figuring out how to hold it in the field that is the big issue. Because of the size of it and there's bellows, it's very front heavy. Um, and then thankfully the shutter release is on the body, but it's not on the side that you'd expect. You want to kind of you have to hold it completely by the back of the camera body for it to be comfortable. And you, you want to try and um, cradle that front section with the bellows to get some level of stability. And when I first started using this camera, I thought that the shutter speeds were a little low, that the shutter was sticky. And then I realized that it was actually camera shake. Because when I, the amount of force needed to press that shutter release, I was tipping the camera forward. So you'd get a lot of camera shake in it, even at shutter speeds where you'd think that you wouldn't get that level of camera shake. Like um, once you get up into uh, the uh, one one hundredth of a second, one two fiftieth of a second, you really think that that camera shake wouldn't matter. But it still gives it because of that front heavy design. But you have that big six by nine negative in something that will cost you. These cameras aren't cheap. Um, in fact, sometimes the cost of these is about equal to a Fujika GW six by nine, like a first, first version of these you'll pay for an even older camera and then getting them serviced is can be a bit difficult um, thankfully the shutter design is fairly universal so you can at least get that done um, by 
someone who's trained or if you want you can try it yourself um but unless you know it unless you know it really well i wouldn't recommend it and another trouble with these is that a lot of people will pay that extra money for the carl zeiss glass so they these ones this is a um, pre-war model and so i highly recommend if you you want one of these to go for the novar and a stigmat these lenses were built by Rodenstock, apparently, so not a not a bad name. Yeah, I think I've heard of them once or twice. <laughs> in lenses. And it's a triplet design, and I love triplet lenses in these old cameras. So is it worth the effort? Absolutely. Is it a camera I reach for all the time? Definitely not. It would be one that I would bring along to a World War II reenactment or World War One reenactment even, because it even though it's post-World War One, most people look at these and go, oh, folder, right? And most people associate that with the early 20th century. So always worth the effort. One thing I'd say about it, and of course, as we're recording this, uh, Alex has the camera in uh, in his hand that's shaking from fatigue because it's so, it's so heavy. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful camera to look at. It just has that early 20th century engineering kind of uh, a touch of class and has that size I'll say gadget not in a bad way but sort of in a good way mm. but let's you know if you're if you're a, a film shooter that you have to admit there's at least a small part of you that likes the gadgets yes I can be honest guilty as charged <laughs> and that camera just nails that look of you know German engineering oh absolutely and they 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 have post-war models as well so the one thing you do need to watch out, especially on the pre-war one, is lens flare. And color film might look a bit muddy on it because, again, they, the, the lens coating technology wasn't quite there yet. So, um, yeah, is it worth the effort? Absolutely. Again, this is an investment. You really want to pay attention to it it does have bellows so you want to look for the that pinholing and for them to be intact and what i really really like about this camera is that on the base it actually has a plaque of where it was originally bought and sold and it was from a camera store in edinburgh scotland oh that's very cool so that's neat so again i i got this for a sweet deal from our very own mr lee who was offloading a bunch of his more premium ones. So I'm very glad to... Uh, Just don't tell me that you got it for free again. No, no. Otherwise, I definitely, I'd have to hurt you. I definitely paid for this, but far less from what it goes for online. The friends and family discount. Absolutely. But, I mean, when it comes to film photography and cameras and gadgets one of the things that a lot of people tend to ignore these days is actually printing their work we live in an online world but sometimes it takes a lot of work to actually print your stuff and sometimes that is totally worth it right john yeah and of course like i'm the old guy here i i, I turned uh 61 a couple of days ago so i'm doing the whole you know get off my lawn you you whippersnappers um but I think back to when I started photography back in the 70s, and you know, a uh, high school art teacher taught a bunch of us how to use a darkroom and that kind of thing. If you wanted to see your images, unless you were shooting color slide, which I couldn't afford most of the time, 
you had to do your own printing. You know, you'd you'd do a contact sheet and then print a uh, a few images like the ones you liked. Uh, quite often, rather small. Like I, I back then, even before four by six was much of a, a standard printing size. You could get a box of a hundred sheets of three and a half by five. That was sort of a standard snapshot. So I do that size or five by seven, or. If I thought something was really speci- special, I'd go up all the way to 8 by 10 which is just, whoo, yes, yes, cue the, cue the angelic choir, because <laughs> I did not have a lot of money, and uh, the processes were not particularly cheap. Um, and, of course, if we fast forward to today, um, uh, people are either shooting pure digital or just using their phones or scanning negatives and then uh, putting the results up online. And there's nothing wrong with that. Anything that uh, encourages people to share their work is great. I'd find it very difficult to go back to a time when the only way to share your work was in a in a wet uh, in a wet print in a wet darkroom. I don't think film would have made as much of a resurgence if we didn't have this uh, online community. I know for sure that CCR wouldn't exist. Well, the other thing, even using a hybrid process, in other words, developing and scanning and doing your post-processing in Lightroom, uh, Photoshop, or the software of your choice, even like printing, like say, via inkjet or going to a lab, even then, it, it's still a process. You, it, people think, oh, I'll just bang this off and off we go. No, you've got to calibrate your monitor. I've literally, when I work post-processing, I dial my monitor strength back because people forget when they see something that, you know, you see a photo, say black and white or color photo, and you've got the monitor strength pretty bright that's it's like you're looking at a slide almost whereas if you're printing there's nothing being reflected behind it it gets very muddy so you gotta dial it back a bit and uh or a lot in some cases uh, if you want decent results and again it is a process uh i don't say well it some regards it is easier because you're not mixing up chemistry in that but even then it's a lot of trial and error especially if you're running with your own inkjet printer, those inks aren't cheap. I think people have to remember that it's not a a false dichotomy between while you either uh, scan and and just go online or or do a wet darkroom there's a lot to be said for like as as bill described the, the hybrid process for me like i'm i'm not a huge fan of wet printing i've done it a lot over the years but it's just not my you know it's to me it's a chore and i'm not getting paid to do this so why should i do something it's a chore so for a lot of stuff now like i'll do the scan i'll i'll scan i'll do the um the work in post and then like this this isn't an ad because you know they're, they're not a sponsor but uh, i tend to get most of my prints done at downtown camera like i've been doing a uh, a photo project a portrait project where people who participate get uh get five by seven prints of the results and uh you know 
five by seven print it doesn't cost i think it may like a buck buck and a quarter if i take the uh, the economy and just be patient and wait a few days and uh, and the people are always so happy to uh to get a physical print regardless of the process because that's something that just seems to have fallen out of collective experience people are just used to seeing uh images online and if something's online, it's sort of inherently disposable. People just well, go. Well, it's much more ephemeral. It's yeah, like exactly. all it takes is, well, well, we're watching Twitter do its slow dive yeah. into something. Anything that's been posted to that may or may not yeah. be there in a few months. <laughs> I'm thinking of like in comparison of like, you know, the ephemerality of, of online media in general. One social media group I'm part of, it's it's an online organized photo swap. It's a postcard swap where you sign up and every month um, you get the address of someone somewhere worldwide to, uh, to send a print. It doesn't have to be a postcard size. It can be like almost anything. Some people are wet prints. Some people it's hybrid, black and white, color, cyanotype. You have no idea what you get, so you send something to someone, and then someone, a surprise, will send something to you. And um, they say it's better to give than receive. Both are amazing in this because it's so much fun to send prints out and to get like the little prints back. And over a while, you you develop an interesting collection of prints you received, and that's something you just don't get online. No, you don't. And online consumption is great, and I love seeing people's work. But yeah, definitely printing is something really fun to do. At home, we have a um, we have sort of a, um, a false window frame with binder clips on it. Um, Heather and I use that for the seating chart for our wedding, and we took it home and we hung it on our wall. And every so often, so there's nine spots on it, and I'll just print up nine new four by sixes and just replace them every couple months and. Yeah, they're all shot, most of them, with my iPhone. <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd rather see that. Remember those cheesy electronic uh, LCD picture frames? Yeah, we have one of those, too. Okay. Hopefully one of the better ones. Yeah. yeah. Th- there, There's no better one anymore. The, the good brand names don't make them anymore, so That's you have bad. to go with the sort of the top-tier cheap mm-hmm. So what I so what I would suggest to people, you know, if you haven't printed something in a while, like you don't have to go out and, and buying your own laser or sorry, inkjet printer. Yeah, the, the you know, you you think high quality single malt scotch is a, is an expensive liquid. It's got nothing compared to the cost of of inkjet inks. I've had bad times with almost every inkjet printer I've ever owned. So I decide it's a lot cheaper just to go down to you know a camera store and some of the camera stores um have the have the kiosks where you can self-serve now some of them they shut them down during covid i think they're slowly starting to come back but uh, like i know like downtown camera they had their kiosks which uh which was great i love the fact of being able to order online just upload oh, upload the images that is brilliant i yeah. do that all the time with burlington camera yeah. or the local photo source mm. Right, depending on how much time I have, right? If I have, well, I use uh, I do an annual Christmas postcard, mm-hmm. okay, and I just order the matte prints from Pitco, uh, five by seven, 
And it, it's not like the high-end stuff. It's like a super matte paper color shot, and it looks gorgeous. And I'll probably order a ton of them. It's all run for the next few years. So really, then I just have to buy five by seven envelopes, and off I go. As for printing, I love darkroom printing. I just currently, my life schedule as it is right now, I don't do anywhere near enough of it. And if I open a, a bottle of multi-grade printer uh developer from Ilford it tends to go bad because I just don't use it often enough which is a problem it's like I enjoy it it's just I'll probably go like four or five months between printing sessions and that's the challenge and I've got a couple of great enlargers which at some point I'm going to have to downsize if I move and uh, I don't know it's a lot of variables that I just you know it is what it is I think the main point is that there's more than one way to get there. And so I'd, you know, if people, if, if I know it's still a month or so before New Year's, but if you're looking for a photography-related um, resolution for next year, resolve to print more of your work, whether it's fl- huge and larger prints or a 4 by 6 from a camera store kiosk and share your work because I think that's a pretty important part of a community process that uh, or even that we're print not a just zine. doing. Yeah, exactly. I use, I, and again, I have a three blur projects almost ready to go. I just have to hit print. And again, it's uh, that's another easy way. And that way you can sort of curate anywhere between if you're just doing one photo per page you can curate almost sort of like a project of sorts. And again, it's something physical, like like as a gift. You can't really gift wrap a URL. No, no, you can't. And continuing on the uh, subject of printing, especially since darkroom printing, let's be honest, it takes up a lot of time, space, and money. You don't always necessarily need a darkroom to be able to make interesting prints so alt printing is something that we have not discussed at all on this and hopefully in the new year i can get the wonderful mr bill schwab on the uh on the show for an interview to discuss some of his amazing work that he does but probably the simplest thing that you can do at home using just uv light or you know the sun when we see it in Toronto, um, is cyanotypes. Yeah, that's the great thing about cyanotypes. It is the perfect introduction into the uh, the wonderful world of alt printing. Like, you know, you don't want to start off doing platinum palladium prints. You just won't. It just, you'll be in the poorhouse in no time. And you know, salt printing has its challenges. Almost every process, alt process, is pretty. Or, or gum bichromate is just. The technical, the uh, the difficulty involved can be quite something, but uh, cyanotype it is a great launching pad and a little bit of history. Cyanotype is one of the oldest photographic processes that's still in use. It uh, it dates back, I believe, to the 1840s, late 1840s. I'm just doing this off the top of my head, um, and I think one of the, the one of the the first books that was published, you know, sort of reproduction photographs back in the day was actually cyanotypes. So it has a long and glorious history. And uh, the process is called cyanotype because the results, unless you modify them, are are blue. It's the same process they used to use for blueprints, by the way. 
And the good thing about cyanotype is it is not hard to get the chemistry, uh, particularly in Canada, um, compared to, let's say, or trying to order uh, you know, silver nitrate liquid. That can be an exercise in pain. But you can buy the stuff online. There are various places online that sell the uh, cyanotype chemical. Uh, you mix it up yourself. You tend to, you know, coat paper yourself. And you'd go to an art store and buy, like, there are various, like, there's watercolor paper. There's stuff that's a bit less of a tooth on the uh, the texture. And uh, you just get, like, a little a little brush and you... Uh, you coat the uh, the paper yourself and let it dry. Now, the the flip side of that is the negative, and there are a couple of different ways you can do this. Um, you can do a hybrid approach if you can get uh, what's called pictorio transparency film, which is an inkjet uh, stock that you would print to, uh, and it's like transparency, and you would print a negative to that. So you do your work in post, then you would uh, just invert the negative to make it, you know, a negative, and uh, and then you print the negative, and then the way you expose this is uh, through contact printing. So you can either get a contact printer or just a nice big piece of glass, uh, a kind of glass that is not UV resistant, by the way, and then uh, you expose it for a few minutes to a strong source of ultraviolet light. Um, you can get it if you're really dedicated. You can get like a dedicated UV light, or as uh, as, as Alex said, you can use uh, the sun. Of course, in Toronto, that means you might only be doing at this time of year cyanotype printing two or three times a month. Well, it's not quite that bad, but it seems that way. And then to also, you're going to have to worry about the time of day as well this yeah. time because the sun isn't really high up in the sky. No, it's a midday kind of thing. Once you've done your exposure, uh, and it takes a bit of practice to sort of dial it in and to know what it should look like before you develop it, the developing process could not be easier. You develop it in lukewarm, just under running water. Um, and that will rinse away all the unused chemistry and leave you with the image. And what you can also do is, uh, is add a bit of uh, hydrogen peroxide, like the same kind you would get at a drugstore, and that will really juice up the intensity of the colors. And then you hang it to dry, and you've got an amazing print. There are also people, maybe that they, they like the, uh, the process. They're not always a big fan of the, uh, you know, vibrant blue. So you can stain the print, uh, for example, using black tea, anything that's a strong source of what's called tannic acid, or even bad wine. Um, if you decide the wine's not good, the red wine's not good enough to drink, um, use it for the, the printing process. And you can get a darker, redder uh, color as well. And there are companies that also sell the specific toners for cyanotypes. So again, the process is easy compared to other alt processes. Um, it's it's inexpensive, and you get an amazing, again, physical print that you can uh, that you can share with people. If, if you go and Google cyanotypes online, you'll see some amazing work. Mm. And in the sh in in our episode notes, I'll uh, include some um, YouTube videos again from Bill Schwab, who does an amazing series on um, creating digital negatives. Um, using Photoshop and Lightroom from either your film scans or from your digital images and how to adjust and print and also one from Matt Marosh on building your own 
contact print UV light source box, which is actually not as expensive as you think because strong UV light sources are readily available in like LED form. So, you know, if, if you want to do uh, cyanotype and you live in Inuvik, you can still do them in December if you get this light source. Yeah, and you can do it all year round and get solid, strong, consistent light because that's what really makes these alt processes, especially cyanotype, really shine is that consistency. But um, one thing that I um, worked on this summer was um, creating black and white slides at home. Now, um, recently, um, we lost um, DR5. He's um, the gentleman behind it has been able to do one more run, but for the longest time, he was the really the only way to convert your black and white negatives film into reversals. And if you've ever seen a well exposed, well developed black and white slide, you would be super impressed. Usually when you hear slide film, you think of color and those are amazing also, especially if you've seen an eight by 10 color slide film that's been properly done of say the parliament buildings in Ottawa. Like it's like you're really there, but doing it at home is a little different and it's really worth it if you can do it right. And it does start with the film itself. You want, um, you want a film that has a perfectly clear base. So something like um, Adox HR50, um, CMS20, CHS102, um, Rolleye RPX25 are all excellent options to be able to do this. And then you need to get a, a kit from, from Adox. And the nice thing is, is that this can be shipped to Canada providing that you're bringing it in from Germany, which I find really weird because Freestyle won't ship it to Canada, but Freestyle does have some shipping problems, especially in regards to, you know, how much it costs and duties. Thankfully it is with the exchange rate and the duties, it's actually still cheaper to bring it in directly from photo impacts over in, in Germany. So you really need um, to watch your exposures, especially if you have a an older camera. You want to make sure you nail you nail that exposure, and and do it just right. And then you run it through um, you run it through a developer, and the developer is always mixed one to one concentrate to water. And it's a long developing cycle if you do like intermittent agitation by hand. You can cut that back if you use constant rotation. If you have a Jobo, uh, an Aura processor, or a Bees processor base, you just cut that time down 10 to 15% depending on um, your RPM of your developer. The problem is, is that that developer is one shot. So if you are just doing a single roll, you've wasted a lot of chemistry. The bleach, how it thankfully is, is reusable. You can use that for multiple rolls of film. So once you've done the developer, you've washed it. You then actually have to take the film out of the tank and re-expose it to light. 
that's where I've that's where I always had problems because they say just just take it out, expose it to light. They give you a distance, um, a wattage of an incandescent bulb. Now most people don't have incandescent bulbs these days. We have CFLs, LEDs, so you really have to play around. Um, and again, we'll have a great video on the episode notes of what Lena Besanova has done because she's done some amazing work with the Scala, um, Scala developer. And then you have to then redevelop it again in the developer you used initially. And then you get these great, you get um, really fantastic results. And, but it just takes time and effort and is it worth it in the end? Absolutely. Would I do it again? Absolutely not. Um, the kit does not last as long as I thought it would, right? And because it's sold as a complete kit, you can't just go out and rebuy that developer. Now, the one thing that I would like to try um, in the new year next summer is working on using regular black and white developers. So something like FX392, FA1027, and then having another, having a bleach and sort of working on the timing for, um, for that to sort of backwards engineer it. And thankfully you can actually go online and read the DR5 process, which might have some clues as well. So that'll just really make it a fun little thing to try and DIY a home black and white slide. Uh, this summer, I, the uh, husband of a friend of my wife's, we, were get, we had got together for a uh, cottage weekend, and he's a retired photographer from uh, OPP, so he shot some fun stuff. Mm. But he had access to a, um, and I'll have to lend this document to you, uh, it's an instruction guide on I get more of an industrial commercial process for black and white transparencies. Ooh, nice. Uh, it involves sulfuric acid. Yeah, probably not good with a one-year-old at home at that no, point. No. But it might be fun just to read. And and then there was the process that, uh, you know, Kelly Shane Fuller, like the uh, the the mad scientist of the film photography community, oh, came up with. Oh, backwards engineering Kodachrome. Well, he did that, but then he also came up with the process for using, um, I think, hydrogen peroxide. Oh, well, that's readily available. Yeah, as as part of the process, although you're developing at a fairly high temperature. Mm. But the, it's the kind of thing where the ingredients are cheap. Mm. So it, if you just want to experiment, you know, you're not throwing away hundreds of dollars on chemistry. It might be worth a shot. No, yeah. No, that's that would be really, really, really cool. So, and there's also still the um, FOMAPAN also does a reversal kit now. So... And Ilford has instructions online on how to do it also. Wouldn't surprise me. But like, yeah. like you said, there are a number of different ways to uh, to skin this cat. So Yeah, exactly. So there's Sorry, cats. <laughs> I shouldn't use that metaphor. So so there's enough information outlined to, online to actually experiment with it. And one of the films that I actually did develop, and I mentioned it earlier, is CHS-102. That can be a bit of an interesting film to work with. And Bill loves CHS-100, too. Thank you, Alex. I could have talked about Ferrania P30, but that's way too easy. And quite honestly, I sort of feel any decent results I've gotten with that film have been more pure luck than, than skill at this point. It's a very contrasty film. So 
we'll leave that for another day. ADOC CHS 102. Now, I've shot variations of this film over the years. Um, I was introduced to it back, way back in 2005. At the time, it was rebadged FK 100, which in turn was basically the old school ADOX 100. From back, ADOX was uh, a going concern in Germany as a film uh, production company. Uh, it was at one point a division of uh, DuPont Chemicals, and um, at some point DuPont sold everything off to FK in Croatia, along with the coating line technology. And Efke just basically ran that beast into the dirt. So at the time I was introduced to it, it was uh, both the ADOX uh, CHS 101 and Efke 100 were on acetate bases. And when I when Efke uh, went bust, when their coating line just sort of died, uh, they had switched then switched to a polyester base, kind of sort of like what the Rolly Retro ADS. Uh, Street Pan 400 is uh, Japan Camera Hunter, Hunter Street Pan 400. Um, so they switched to that, and then it was like uh, ADOX themselves, now owned by Photo Impacts, um, started producing again out of their, uh, I believe, their uh, Swiss factory, which was a former Ilford plant. And, and now this- they do it in Germany. Oh, they do it in Germany now. Yeah, um, they they have a they opened up a uh, plant in Bad Saro. Oh, that's cool. So this version of the CHS one hundred two uh, has great. It, it, let's just say it. It's like the old school version, but again on well maintained equipment with much tighter quality control. Now the thing with this film, it's a single layer. High silver content, 100 speed black and white negative film. It responds okay in all the usual suspect developers. Now, you can't overexpose it. Uh, best to shoot in a camera with a meter you trust or have a very reliable handheld meter when you're shooting with this film. And, you know, I've shot, I've processed it in D76, I've processed it in Rodanol, and the results were okay. It was when Alex here suggested get a bottle of FX39 by ADOX. That's when things just clicked. And for those who have seen the stuff I've shot up in northern Muskoka, um, Bella Lake at uh, Billy Bear Resort, you can understand why. And then it's just like, then all of a sudden, yeah, this is worth it's worth the effort, and of course, you know, uh, we have a local source for ADOX products. However, when they go out of stock, they go out of stock for a while because they got to meet a minimum order. And in the end, they had developer, which I bought a second bottle, a bottle of, just be on the safe side. And of course, I've inquired with Lena uh, Besanova as to the longevity, and she says, yep, yeah, I've been using one for over a year. It's just like HC110. And I just, in the end, says, fine, I'm just going to order 20 more rolls direct from Photo Impacts and wait for DHL Mail to do its part. And DHL is actually pretty good unless they uh, turn it over to a third-party courier, in which case you might get it returned without them even contacting you. I've been fortunate. uh, DHL Mail just pans over to Canada Post. Yeah, which which is great. It's when they turn it over to something like T-Force. Or in telecom. 
Yeah, well, I've been touch wood lucky at this point. Excellent. Well, that about covers it for this episode. I hope everyone has uh, gotten a bit of uh, inspiration to, you know, make the effort, do some printing, try a try a film you've you've struggled with in the past, try something a little bit different. Until next time, uh, my name's Alex Lokes, and I can't believe we uh, we completely and totally skipped over a whole double stroke double entendre there. This is Bill Smith. Yes, I'm shocked too, but again, uh, the coffee really hasn't taken full effect yet. So yeah, stay cool, shoot tons of film. And if it's one you're not comfortable with, buy 20 rolls, get acquainted with that film. This is John Meadows. At the end of the day, photography is like being a housebroken puppy. You want to do it on the paper.